See, there is unbelievable eyewitness testimony of who Jesus was and what he was all about. He wasn't just some mere man. The earliest disciples knew that he was God. This is season 10 of Guerrilla Christianity. My name is Pastor Brett Walker, and I want to thank you for listening to Guerrilla Christianity, an unconventional, no apologies exposition of God's grace from an evangelical Methodist point of view. And God's Word is central to all we believe, so let's get into God's Word right now. Now please remain standing for the reading of God's Holy Word from the Gospel according to St. Matthew, chapter 17, and beginning of verse 1. Let us hear the word of the Lord for us today. And after six days, Jesus taketh Peter, James, and John, his brother, and bringeth them up into an high mountain apart, and was transfigured before them, and his face did shine as the sun, and his raiment was white as the light. And behold, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias talking with him. Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. While he yet spake, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. And behold, a voice out of the cloud which said, This is my beloved son in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. And when the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise, and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. And as they came down from the mountain, Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. This is the word of the Lord for the people of God. Thanks be to God. You may be seated. Today we are concluding our series called All Things New. As we come to the end of ordinary time after the epiphany, we have seen over the past eight weeks how God gives to us a new season in life. That it is that through, though there is sorrow, there is also rejoicing. We looked at the new birth and its place in our salvation. How God takes the initiative by first giving to us a new heart with new desires. We saw how Jesus calls his disciples and gives to us a new identity. Our identity is in Christ and not in the things of the world. We were given a new direction in our repentance, turning away from sin and turning toward God. We received a new blessing that when we mourn for our sin, it is an indication of how God has saved us, because those who have not been reborn do not see their own rebellion against God. We were given a new purpose, to be salt and light in the world, to point others to Christ and his saving grace. We were given a new way of looking at the law, and it is revealed that God searches the heart. God is indeed making all things new, and we are his testimony to that effect. Today we see a new vision of who Christ is, revealed first to his disciples, and then to us as well through their witness. 
Uh, Let us receive this word now from God. Let us pray. Lord, open our eyes to see your glory. By your Holy Spirit, may we receive this vision of Christ, that he would be revealed to us in his glory, the glory as of the only begotten of the Father. Fill us with your spirit and open our hearts to receive your word. For we ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. We come to a Transfiguration Sunday. And Transfiguration Sunday is a Sunday that we observe every year on the church calendar. It is the Sunday before the beginning of the season of Lent. It's the last Sunday in the season after the Epiphany. And so Wednesday being Ash Wednesday, the beginning of Lent, this is the last Sunday of the season after Epiphany, and so we, we observe the transfiguration. We do this every year. We look at how Jesus took, uh, uh, took Peter, James, and John up on a high mountain, and he was transfigured before them. We know this story, how, how it goes. What I want to point out, though, is why? Why do we observe this day? What is it about this particular event in the life and ministry of Christ that makes it so that we want to commemorate it every year? Because I believe that the transfiguration is the hinge point of Christ's ministry. It is the pivot that he all along has been Uh, teaching and preaching and healing and performing miracles. And after this, he sets his face to go to Jerusalem. Everything that happens after the transfiguration is him going to Jerusalem. And he starts here pretty far away from Jerusalem. But his ultimate goal is to go to Jerusalem. Why? Not to be instated as a king, not to be held up as a high priest, but to be a sacrifice for us, to be betrayed into the hand of sinners and to die the death that we deserve and then in three days rise from the dead. We see that in this text today. If you go back chapter 16 and verse 13, This is to put us in some context. All three of what we call the synoptic gospels, the gospels of Matthew, Mark, and Luke, and we call them synoptic because they are very similar in their content and in their timeline. It's sin, sin like like synchronous, and optic like you see. So these are three eyewitness accounts that are coming from about the same time. And all three of these accounts record these events in the exact same order, okay? So first, we see at Caesarea Philippi, Jesus asks his disciples, who do the people say that the Son of Man is? Verse 13. When Jesus came to the coast of Caesarea, this is uh, chapter 16, verse 13. Jesus came into the coast of Caesarea Philippi. He asked his disciples, saying, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? 
Now here's something interesting. When you read the actual Greek, that I is not there. It just says, who do people say that the Son of Man is? Why did they decide to stick in that I? Well, because it's apparent later on. Verse 15, he says, but who do you say? I am. So obviously he's saying, I am the Son of Man. What is the Son of Man? The Son of Man is a prophetic uh, term in the Old Testament for the Messiah, the one who was to come, the anointed one of God. So when he asked them this question, who do men say that the Son of Man is? They said, some say that thou art John the Baptist, some Elias or Elijah, others Jeremiah or Jeremiah, or one of the prophets. And he said to them, but who do you say that I am? And Simon Peter answered and said, thou art the Christ, the son of the living God. Jesus answered and said unto him, blessed art thou, Simon Bar-Jonah, Bar-Jonah meaning the son of Jonah, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. Understand that everything that we can ever know about Jesus Christ is revealed to us through the Holy Spirit and not by the teachings of people. What did Peter say in his epistle? He said, understand that uh, no prophecy of the scripture is by any private interpretation for the prophecy came not in old time by the will of man, but holy men of God spake as they were moved by the Holy Ghost. All this knowledge that we have of Jesus Christ comes to us by the Holy Spirit. And so it's the Holy Spirit that reveals these things to Simon. Verse 18, he says, I say also unto thee that thou art Peter. Your name used to be Simon, now it's Peter. I'm giving you a new identity. See, the word Simon means a pebble. What does a pebble do? It gets in your shoe. It's annoying. It bothers you. But he says, you are Peter. Petros, which means rock. And it's very interesting that he says it this way. You are Peter. And upon this rock, I will build my church and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. Now, he's not saying that Peter is the foundation of the church. The foundation of the church is the truth that has been revealed to Peter. That Jesus is the Messiah the son of the living God. And he says, I will give thee the keys of the kingdom of heaven and whatever, whatsoever thou shalt bind on earth shall be bound in heaven. Whatsoever thou shalt loose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he charged his disciples that they should tell no man that he was Jesus the Christ. Why? Because they won't get it. See, here's the, see, it's very easy for us to understand on this side of the resurrection. But the resurrection hasn't happened yet. The crucifixion hasn't happened yet. The betrayal hasn't happened yet. We'll even see that in this next section, verse 20. Verse 21. From that time forth began Jesus to shew unto his disciples how he must go unto Jerusalem and suffer many things of the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and raised again on the third day. So he's telling them right up ahead of time. He's saying, I'm going to be betrayed. I'm going to be killed. 
And on the third day, I'm going to be raised from the dead. Now, their response to that was, what does he mean by that? What does he mean by that? And they couldn't figure it out. Okay, I've read this passage many, many times, and I've looked at it in the Greek, and I've analyzed it for you so that you can know that this is exactly what he meant. What he meant was this, that he would be betrayed, that he would be killed, and that he would be raised from the dead in three days. He meant it exactly as he said it, but they didn't get it. Why? Again, we're on this side of the resurrection. We can know with certainty that this has happened, we can look at the disciples and say, how can you be so foolish? How can you not understand? He's telling you plainly. But they just didn't get it. I mean, first of all, nobody ever claimed this before. I'm going to die and then I'm going to come back in three days. Nobody claimed it and nobody did it. So they, they're like, well, what does he mean by that? Maybe he means it in a metaphorical way. But no, he meant it literally. But Peter took him and began to rebuke him, saying, Be it far from thee, Lord, this shall not be unto thee. And this is what Peter's saying. First of all, there's two things, there's two parts of what Peter's saying. First of all, he's saying, you know, don't tell everybody you're going to die because this is going to bring everybody down. Who's going to follow somebody who is just going to die? Why would we follow you? That's the first thing he's saying. But the second thing he's saying is this. He's saying, Jesus, look around you. You got 12 guys. We're hardworking guys. All right. We're going to make sure that this never happens. We're going to protect you. Right. We're your bodyguards. We're, we're, nobody's going to kill you. But he turned and said unto Peter, get thee behind me, Satan. The same guy who he just praised. He said, Blessed art thou, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood hath not revealed it unto thee, but my Father which is in heaven. And then, like, less than five verses later, he's saying, Get behind me, Satan. Thou art an offense unto me, for thou savorest not the things that be of God, but those that be of men. And what's he saying? He's not literally calling Peter Satan. But he is saying to him, that he's a temptation. He's an adversary. By He's tempting Jesus. Peter is tempting Jesus in this moment. He's saying to Jesus, we're going to protect you. You're not, this is not going to happen to you. And it's very easy for Jesus to say, you know what? I don't want to die. I don't want to be hung on a cross. And I don't want to go into the tomb and all this stuff. It's, it's a very painful thing that he's going to do. But he does it willingly. And so he, he says, you're setting your sights on the things of the earth, not the things of God. So, then he goes on to say, if any man will come after me, let him deny himself and take up his cross and follow me. So to deny ourselves is to deny our sinful nature. The things that we want to do, we want to not set our things on the things of the earth, our eyes on the things of the earth. We want to set our th eyes on the things of heaven, right? Which is exactly what he just told Peter. Let him deny himself, deny his sinful self. Don't do those things that separate you from God. And then take up his cross. What does it mean to take up your cross? A cross is an implement of execution. 
And so he's saying you have to put yourself to death. You have to put to death that old sinful nature and follow me. This is the important thing. He says, follow me. Why? Because he goes before us. Because he goes in front of us. Because he didn't just send us forward with our crosses. He, went, he picked up his cross and he said, follow me. Now, what did Jesus have to put to death? In his flesh. He didn't have a sin nature like we have. Okay? He didn't have sin to be punished. He was perfect, but he carried our sin to the cross for us. And he says, for what whosoever will save his life shall lose it. Whosoever will lose his life for my sake shall find it. For what is it a, a man profited if he shall gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what shall a man give up in exchange for his soul? Then he says, the Son of Man shall come in the glory of his Father with his angels, and he shall reward every man according to his works. Verily I say unto you, there be some standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. Now, there's a couple of ways you can interpret this and a couple of ways it's been interpreted. He says that there are some present He's talking to his 12 disciples. There are some present, not all, but some, who will not see death before they see Christ coming into his kingdom. When did Christ come to his, into his kingdom? Some people have looked at this and said that the transfiguration itself is him coming into his kingdom. But he had not yet gone to the cross and died and was raised again in three days. He had not yet come to that part. Some people believe he was speaking of his second coming. Some people believe that it was the destruction of the temple in 70 AD. But when did Jesus come into his kingdom? We get a clue from the thief on the cross. The thief on the cross says to Jesus, Jesus, remember me when you come into your kingdom. And Jesus said to him, I tell you the truth, today you will be with me in paradise. Jesus came into his kingdom when he died on the cross and was rose from the dead. That's when he came into his kingdom. Not all the twelve saw it. There was one who did not. His name was Judas, the one who betrayed him. Judas, when he saw what, Jesus, what, had happened, what had become of Jesus, he was so wracked with guilt that he went out and he hung himself. He didn't wait. He didn't see the resurrection. But the other 11 did. So he says, there are some who are standing here which shall not taste of death till they see the Son of Man coming in his kingdom. And now we get to chapter 17, which is the transfiguration account. Now, after six days, remember he's in Caesarea Philippi. Now, Caesarea Philippi is 25 miles north of the Sea of Galilee. So pretty far north and pretty far away from Jerusalem, right? Well, just to the north of Caesarea Philippi, there's this mountain. It's called Mount Hermon. 
It's just a couple of miles from Caesarea Philippi. You can see it, I'm sure. Just as when you're, if you've you've ever been to Seattle, um, you can see Mount Rainier, you know, when it's not raining or when it's not foggy, which is almost never, but (laughs) you can see Mount Rainier from Seattle on a clear day. Mount Hermon is closer than that. Uh, uh, Mount Rainier is about 60 miles away from uh, Seattle. But Mount Hermon is right next to uh, uh, Caesarea Philippi. In fact, Caesarea Philippi is right at the, in, at the foot of this mountain. Okay? So after six days, Jesus takes Peter, James, and John, his brother, James's brother, and brings them up into a high mountain apart. Now, he, all, both, both Matthew and Mark say it's six days that's passed since the previous three events. Luke's gospel says about, about eight days. Uh, we can forgive Luke. He wasn't actually there. But about eight days or six days, I mean, that's picking nits, you know. So we can conclude that the timeline is specifically six days. Now, Peter, James, and John were the three disciples who were closest to Jesus. They were among the first disciples that he called, and they were frequently privy to certain events that the others were not. For example, when Jesus went and healed the daughter of Jairus, brought her back from the dead, uh, he only had Peter, James, and John with him in the room. Um, When he was at Gethsemane, and he was pouring out his agony there and praying. Praying with him were Peter, James, and John. Of course, Peter, James, and John were also grieving and they would fall asleep. But they were the ones who were the closest to Jesus. And the high mountain again is Mount Hermon. Mount Hermon is 9,000 feet above sea level. It's very, it's at, you know, Caesarea Philippi is at the foot of Mount Hermon. And Mount Hermon has snow-capped peaks all year round. So think about that for a second, because when he says he takes them up onto a high mountain, he's taking them up to this snow-covered peak. You know, these are desert people. They're not used to the cold, I'm sure. But what do we see in snow and ice? We see white. We're going to see the glory of God. Then answered, uh, I'm sorry, and was Jesus, verse 2, was transfigured before them and his face did shine as the sun and his raiment or his clothing was white as the light. So the word transfigured is the Greek word metamorpho. Metamorpho, which is where we get our word metamorphosis. Think of a, uh, a butterfly emerging from a chrysalis. Okay, the caterpillar goes in and the caterpillar's kind of ugly, right? Does not very appealing looking. Um, but the caterpillar is changed in the chrysalis and emerges as this beautiful butterfly. And now the caterpillar, which was tied to the ground, can fly away. You know, that's what transfiguration is. Every part of his form was changed. And behold, verse 3, there appeared unto them Moses and Elias, or Elijah, talking with them. So Moses and Elijah represent the law and the prophets. The scriptures testify 
to who Jesus is and why he came. Why was he shining, by the way? Why was his face shining like the sun? It's a depiction of the glory of God. No one had ever seen the glory of God. In fact, um, Moses was allowed to see some of God's glory. At one time, he said, show me your glory. And God said, I'm going to put you into a cleft of a rock. And I'm going to put my hand over it, and I will pass by you. And as I pass by you, I will declare my name, the Lord. But you can't see my face, because no one can see me and live. After I pass by you, I'll take away my hand, and you will see the back of me, but my face you shall not see. That's exactly what happened. But just seeing the back of God and the glory of God's back, the glory of God infused itself into the very pores of Moses' face so that his face was shining when he came down the mountain and the people were afraid. He had to put a veil over his face so that he wouldn't scare people. And that's just from seeing the back of God's glory. Here we're seeing the fullness of God's glory in Jesus Christ. And John attests to this, by the way. John, one of the three who was there, in his gospel, now he doesn't write about this exact event in his gospel, but what he does write hints at it. John 1.14 says, The word became flesh and dwelt among us, and we have seen his glory. Glory as of the only Son from the Father, full of grace and truth. We've seen his glory. We beheld it. He's saying, you know, in, in, in the letter that he wrote, his first letter, he says, that which was from the beginning, which we have heard, which we have seen with our eyes, which we looked upon and have touched with our hands concerning the word of life. In other words, he's saying, we didn't hear this from a friend of a friend of a friend. We were there. We saw it. We touched it. We, we, we handled him. The life was made manifest and we have seen it and testified to it and proclaimed to you the eternal life which was with the Father and was made manifest to us. That which we have seen and heard we proclaim also to you so that you too may have fellowship with us and indeed our fellowship is with the Father and with his Son Jesus Christ. See, there is unbelievable eyewitness testimony of who Jesus was and what he was all about. He wasn't just some mere man. The, the earliest disciples knew that he was God. And they told people, but they didn't tell people right away. We're going to get to that in a second. So verse 4, Then answered Peter and said unto Jesus, Lord, it is good for us to be here. If thou wilt, let us make here three tabernacles, one for thee and one for Moses and one for Elias. Peter doesn't understand that this vision is only temporary. It's only for their benefit. He thinks that this is the coming of the kingdom. So he seeks permanence. He wants to establish this place as a holy site and shrine. Then God responds, verse 5, While he yet spake, Behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them. Where have we heard that before? The bright clouds overshadowing them. Oh yeah, we just read about it in Exodus today, didn't we? Exodus chapter 24. Uh, here it is. 
The glory of the Lord abode upon Mount Sinai, and the cloud covered it six days, and the seventh day he called unto Moses out of the midst of the cloud. So we see the glory of God and this cloud surrounding the top of this mountain. Now we see it again. A bright cloud overshadowed them, and behold, a voice out of the cloud, which said, This is my beloved Son, in whom I am well pleased. Hear ye him. So God, in response, testifies to the deity of Christ. This is my beloved Son. And he charges the disciples to listen to him, giving authority to Christ to speak on behalf of God the Father. Now again, Peter... Peter, in his second letter, which we also read today, says this. He says, We did not follow cleverly devised myths when we made known to you the power and coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, but we were eyewitnesses of his majesty. For when he received honor and glory from God the Father, and the voice was borne to him by the majestic glory, this is my beloved Son with whom I am well pleased, we ourselves heard this very voice, born from heaven, for we were with him on the holy mountain. We're eyewitnesses. We saw it. We're not telling you what we heard somebody else say. We're telling you what we saw with our own eyes. And then verse 6. When the disciples heard it, they fell on their face and they were sore afraid. And Jesus came and touched them and said, Arise and be not afraid. And when they had lifted up their eyes, they saw no man save Jesus only. So though the disciples feared, Jesus reassures them by touching them and telling them to rise. At this, they only see Jesus before, as he was before this vision. In verse 9, as they came down from the mountain... Jesus charged them, saying, Tell the vision to no man until the Son of Man be risen again from the dead. Why? Because nobody's going to understand it. Nobody's going to believe it. But after he's raised from the dead, then everybody can receive this truth. So after the disciples declare who Christ is, after he tells them about his impending death and resurrection, after he charges them to deny themselves, to take up their cross and follow him, Jesus gives to just three of his disciples a new vision of who he is. He is a man, yes, but he is more than that. Jesus is the son of the living God, the second person of the Trinity. He is the word made flesh. He is Emmanuel, God with us. He is eternally begotten of the Father, and his glory is the glory of the Father. He is God of very God. He is fully man and fully God. He is the Holy One of Israel, the root of Jesse's tree, the son of David. All these things are revealed in this new vision that he has given to the disciples and which the disciples give to us. We have reliable witnesses that Jesus Christ is our God and that God himself stepped off his throne in heaven to reconcile sinful man to himself by living the perfect life that we could not live, by dying the death that we deserve, and by rising again from the dead, conquering death and offering to us eternal life in his name. This is Jesus. This vision has been given to us as well so that we may know with certainty that Christ is our Lord. We can know with confidence that Jesus is who he said he was. 
It has been revealed to us by the Holy Spirit in the pages of the Bible when our eyes were opened at our new birth. And God is making all things new. Let us fill the world with praise for our God and King. Let us pray. Almighty God, our Heavenly Father, you have revealed to us this new vision of who Jesus is. And so we can know with confidence that our God took upon himself our sin so that we could be the righteousness of God in him. What great love you have shown to your creation. How wondrous is this vision, given first to the three, then to the many, and now to all the world in the pages of Scripture recorded for us today. We give great thanks for this vision of Christ, that our faith is based in evidence, and we pray for others who do not yet know you as Lord, that they too may receive this vision and know that Jesus Christ is Lord of all. May your spirit open the eyes of the blind. May Christ be exalted. And may you be glorified in all things. For we ask it in Christ our Lord and Savior. Amen. Thank you for listening to today's episode. My hope and prayer for you is that today's teaching has blessed you as much as it has blessed me putting this message together. God has also blessed me by calling me to serve two churches in Salem County, New Jersey. Ebenezer United Methodist Church in Auburn, and Hudson United Methodist Church in Pedricktown. If you live in the area and don't have a faith community of your own, I'd like to invite you to join us on Sunday mornings. Ebenezer meets for worship at 9 a.m., and Hudson meets for worship at 10.30. We are Bible-believing, gospel-preaching, Christ-adoring congregations in the heart of New Jersey's farmland, and we also have Bible study during the week. Of course, if you don't live in the area, get involved with the church where you are. We are not called to be Christians in isolation, but in community. So I would encourage you to live out your faith with a group of like-minded believers where you are. Now, if our message today has touched you in some way, won't you please let us know? Send us an email, drop us a comment, subscribe, and share this message with someone who needs to hear it. Keep learning, keep growing, and I pray you will join us for Guerrilla Christianity again. Until then, remember this, Christ died for you. Now go live for Christ.